On February 22nd, 1732, George Washington was born. But that day, when he's just a little baby, as he had been born, no one could understand that day that one day he would lead the patriot forces to victory in the war for independence. How could anyone know that he'd preside over the Constitutional Convention in 1787, which established the U.S. Constitution? How would anybody know or be able to guess that day when he was born that he would be the first president of the United States? Then on March 14th, 1879, Albert Einstein was born. As he was there, a baby, helpless, not very smart at that time. How could anybody know that the word genius would be somewhat synonymous with Albert Einstein? He was a theoretical physicist who developed the theory of relativity. And he's best known for his mass energy equivalence formula, which is E equals MC squared. You know that. On November 7th, 1918, Billy Graham was born. And really, there was no way of knowing that day as he was born that he would be one of the greatest evangelists of the modern era. There was no way to know on that day he was born the millions of people that would come to faith in Christ through Billy Graham crusades. There was no way to know that he'd be one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. But some 2,000 years ago, there was a day when Jesus Christ was born. When God stepped down from heaven to this earth through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And on that day, the Father wanted to make sure that there was no doubt about who was born that day. And there was a heavenly host that appeared, making it clear to some shepherds at night that there was a Savior, a Christ, the Lord, had been born that day. And that is the title of today's sermon is Savior Christ Lord. We're in an Advent series, these four weeks of Advent. What we're doing is we're in Luke 2, and we'll be in Luke 2, 11 today. And we're exploring the message of the angels as they appeared that night to the shepherds and the events that kind of surround what took place that night. So today we'll be in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. We're just going to cover... One verse, because I want to make sure we understand the titles of Jesus that are given in that verse and what that means really to us today, thousands of years later. But what I want to do is get a running start up to verse 11 for context. So if you'll join me, we're going to read Luke 2, 1 through 10 together, and then we'll kind of dig in to verse 11 with the time that we have remaining. So let's look at Luke chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, the city to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son. Notice the capital S there. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. 
because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this is what we looked at last week, verse 9. Now, there were in that same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. This great contrast between the babe in a manger and the shepherds. And then, verse 9, another contrast. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And that's what we looked at last week, is that there is joy for all in Jesus, that he is the joy that God gives, and it is a joy that is full. And part of what makes the good news the good news is that it is for all. So that's what we looked at last week. Now, verse 11, for there is born to you this day. So what's the source of this joy? Well, there's born to you this day, this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So there's three titles here about Jesus that I want us to explore. But first of all, as we go through verse 11, there is born to you this day. This day there is born to you. Born to who? Now who? The angels and the glory of the Lord and all of this is happening and it's lighting up the night sky. And think about it this way. When you have good news that you want to share, what do you usually do? You probably call a family member or a best friend or somebody real close to you, right? What does the heavenly father do when his son is born? He sends angels. The father is excited about telling, really, these shepherds that represent the lowest class of the social ladder. I mean, they're down there. And that is who the father is excited about telling that the son has been born. There is born to you this day. That was the message to the shepherds. I take great comfort in that, realizing the one who is Savior, who is Christ, who is Lord, he's born to you. He's, he's my Savior. He's my Christ. He's, he's my Lord. He is for all who call out to him by faith. There is born to you this day. Again, there have been many significant things that have happened throughout history. Many people that have been born, that have been life changers and world shakers. But there's been none like Jesus. He is unique. He is set apart. His birth is set apart from all others. He did not just come into being when he was born. He is eternal God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet he invaded time and space. He chose to come and dwell among us and to do so through the humility of being born as a baby, dependent on a mother for his life. That was what God chose to do. There was born to you this day. Things have changed. Everything is different from that day forward. No other day has been like that day. There was born to you, it says, this day in the city of what? In the city of David. Now what's interesting about this is in 2 Samuel 5, David, as he was becoming king over Israel, he went and he invaded Jerusalem and kicked the Jebusites out of there. And he made Jerusalem his capital city. So from 2 Samuel 5 on, Jerusalem is known as the city of David. But why are they calling Bethlehem the city of David? It's happened twice in this passage. What's the deal with that? Well, I think there's at least two things going on. One was Jerusalem, at the time Jesus was born, had really become kind of a corrupt place. 
You had Jews working for Rome, cheating their own countrymen as tax collectors. You had the priest cheating their own people. When the people came to the temple, the priest would say, oh, no, 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 that lamb you brought isn't good enough. You need to buy a temple lamb. And by the way, it's marked up about five times the, the going rate. There was corruption, corruption, corruption all throughout Jerusalem. There was dead religion all throughout Jerusalem. There was legalism all throughout Jerusalem. There was an invading, uh, conquering uh, personality in Herod, and there were this, these soldiers from Rome that at any moment could take uh, the city inhabitants of Jerusalem where they had occupied that city by force, and they could mistreat them. So there was injustice, there was corruption, there was this harsh Roman government, the Jews were cheating one another. So really, when you think about Jerusalem during this time, it's not really a great city. Now, going back some 700 years before, there was the prophecy of Micah. And I think this is the real thing that was happening here. Look at, if, if you're in Luke 2, flip a little bit in your left, if, to the left of your Bible, to Micah. Micah is one of the minor Old Testament prophets. You don't have to go far to the left. You'll, you'll see Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, some minor prophets there together. Micah lived 700 years before Jesus was born. And you know what his prophecy is about? It's about the corruption of Jerusalem. And what he does is he prophesies in the Spirit of God. It's about the corruption of Samaria and Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, yes. And so 700 years before Jesus is born, Micah, looking at the corruption of Jerusalem, prophesies about a ruler who would come, but not out of Jerusalem, out of guess what city? Bethlehem. And where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. And guess what? Adding another layer to it. Remember how God told David you'd never lack anyone to sit on your throne? Guess what David's, while Jerusalem was the city of David, if you look in 1 Samuel 17, 5, I think it is, guess what David's hometown is? Bethlehem. See, God had something he was working all along that is far greater than our sin. And look at this prophecy. We read it for our scripture reading today. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Apathra, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So not out of Jerusalem, out of Bethlehem. There is one born to you this day in the city of Bethlehem. Whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Well, how could that be? How could one come out of Bethlehem that is eternal? See, God's plan. This is 700 years before Jesus is born. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. So let's go back to Luke with that in mind, begin to apply this to our lives today. Luke, let's read this again, Luke 2.11, for there is born to you this day in the city of what? city of David. Again, it's been God's plan all along. There's no mistake. God is breaking into time. There's something taking place that will change everything. And it is a, God called it way out, right? This is what's going to happen. 
And it's happening. There's born to you this day in the city of David a what? What's the first thing? A Savior. In the Greek, soter, one who rescues, one who delivers. You know, when I was, uh, I think it was around second grade. It may have even been younger than that. I was a young child in Dallas. We had one of those harsh, uh, I believe it was around January or February, where a freeze comes in. And we had a, we kind of have that, that freeze early in the year sometimes. And, and we had a pool in our backyard, and it had frozen so hard that there was a layer of ice on our pool. I had gotten up that morning. I would gotten ready for school. I was bundled up with a heavy coat, mittens, hat, all that kind of stuff. And I'm bundled up. I have all these heavy clothes on me. And at that time, we were doing carpool. So the, the moms took turns picking up a handful of us in the neighborhood, taking us to school. So I was waiting on my friend and his mom to come and pick me up. So I asked my mom, can I go play out in the backyard with my dog? So I go and I run outside and I'm playing in the snow and I'm playing with my dog. And I'm running around the pool and my dog jumps up on me and knocks me into the pool. Now I knew how to swim, kind of. I mean, it was a young kid weighed down with all these heavy clothes. I remember breaking through the ice and going into shock as that cold water hit, and I was close enough to the side, I was holding on with one arm, trying not to sink. And I remember just screaming out for my mom. I remember, I remember holding on and being in shock and freezing and feeling the weight of my clothing as it was taking on water. And my mom heard something, you know, it was kind of like a lassie moment. My dog starts barking, you know, Jimmy's in the well? Okay, let's go. <laughs> and so my mom hears the dog bark, and she looks out the window, and she comes bolting out the door. And what does she do? Does she stand there and go, well, I hope you learned your lesson? Does she do that? No, she saves me, right? Now, there is only one Savior, that is Jesus. But in that moment, my mom saved me. She literally saved my life in that moment in time. And when we see the word Savior in the Bible in reference to Jesus, that, that's a fraction of it. That really can't, we can't really comprehend the fullness of Jesus' saving power because it's just so mighty and who he is as our Savior because of the depth of our sin. But that gives you a little bit of a picture of what's being said is that there is one who is a Savior that is born, and he's born to you, and he's born this day. He's available to you. A Savior is born. And that brings us to our first point today. Number one, there is but one Savior, and he saves by sacrifice. And that's, that's where it's going to get into our lives today. There is but one Savior, and he saves by sacrifice. This is why I believe we do not have that saving power of Jesus appropriated in our life on a daily basis. It's, it's illustrated in Judges 18. In the book of Judges, the children of Israel had gone into the promised land, and they were having skirmishes with the Canaanites and the different uh, tribes that were in the promised land, and they were taking territory, or they weren't. And at this point in Judges 18, some from the tribe of Dan decide they want to try to take a certain territory. And they go into this city. And one of the things they do, they're kind of going through the city. They're a big force. They're bigger than the city. They're kind of going through like thugs, just taking whatever they want. 
and they go into this one guy's house, and they steal his household idols, and they just, they just take his stuff. And as the people of Dan are leaving that city, this man that they had stolen from, he comes out and he says, what are you doing? You've taken the gods that I have made. Now just stop and ponder on that for a minute. Do you need to rescue your God? If you do, that's a pretty sorry God. What are you doing? You're taking the gods that I have made. You see, Satan's schemes are, are crafty. Sometimes Satan will tempt you with blatant things, but most often not, because if it's too blatant, you recognize it. You don't take the bait. Satan's schemes usually are much more subtle, and I think that that is what he has done with much of the church today, is he has convinced us that there's not just one Savior, but there are other things that are able to save. For instance, we believe that if we have uh, over a thousand followers on Twitter or whatever social media is your favorite at this point in time, that you have that status that it is putting you in a place of favor with people, and that is really what's going to make your life work. And without saying it this way, we're actually trusting in that as our Savior. There are times that we are given power, maybe authority. God blesses us and we have money. And I've several of my friends, as we've grown older, uh, have, been, have become very wealthy. And one of the things, because I'm a pastor, that they talk to me about is they struggle writing their tithe check the more money they make. When they were only making $1,000 a month, they didn't have a problem writing a tithe check. But all of a sudden now when their tithe check is $1,000 a month, it's hard for them to write it. And sometimes what happens is before we realize it, we've begun to trust in other things to be our saviors. Maybe some of you are trusting in relationships. You have to have that certain marriage. Or young people, one of the things that Satan just loves to make you look fools with is that boyfriend or girlfriend that you think you have to have. And you do all kinds of things that compromise your Christian faith. And you end up hurt and straying from God because really, in reality, you're trusting in a person to, save, to make you feel okay. And I think that subtly, it's not blatant, it's subtle. It's so sneaky. We fall into trusting other people or things than Jesus. In my time being a pastor, I've even seen people do this regarding worship services. I remember a young man at a church plant that I was at. He was really bouncing around from church to church a lot. And I talked to him about it. And you know what he was doing? He was searching for a specific experience. And he thought, if I have this experience, then my life will be okay. I won't struggle with this sin anymore. I won't have this problem. I just need this experience, and then things will be different. I have seen people make a worship service their savior. You know, there have been some services, especially early on, before I even surrendered to ministry. And there are times, and I can relate, when it's like, I just need to get to church 
You know, life is happening, things are crazy, but I know if I can just get to church and my people are there and we're singing praises to God and, and there's the word being preached, and man, should that be an encouragement to you? Yes! Should that build you up? Yes! Have there been times in my life that are defining moments at an altar? Yes. But is any of that my Savior? No. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, God really spoke to me deeply about this this week. I'm still mulling it over. Here's what I'm going to propose to you to think about. I think that the church, by and large today, has lost the day-to-day saving power and reality of Jesus Christ in our lives because we have made our Sunday morning worship times about receiving instead of what we bring to our king. That, that's, that's my theory. Now, why do I say that? Well, because I've been thinking a lot about worship, and I've been looking in the Bible, what the Bible says about worship. It says things about the heart. They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Did you know that the divorce rate in the church and out of church is about equal? They draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. You can, you can look right and have a good game on Sunday morning, but what's happening Monday? So the Bible talks a lot about worship, and, and the heart in worship is really what it talks about. And if you go to the Old Testament sacrificial system, what was it about? Think about it. The book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and a large part of Deuteronomy, read those And look at what they're about. They are about what God tells us to receive. No. They're about what God tells us to bring as our act of worship. And in the bringing of worship to him, we receive his favor, his goodness, his blessings. But what God has absolutely convinced me of and convicted me of this week is that if my worship is about what I am receiving, then I have bought into the consumerism of the modern era, and I am actually engaging in unbiblical worship. Because worship throughout Scripture is about what I bring to my king. And I'll be glad to sit down across the table with the Bible and show you verse by verse where that is. Now, that being said, what are the implications of that? The implications of that are, I'm not even talking about music style, preaching style, decor. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking big picture. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to think, when you gather together as a church, when we have the privilege of gathering together, as you're getting ready to come to church on Sunday morning, is your, ask yourself, this is what I've had to do this week. Is your mindset... I cannot wait to come and bring worship to my king with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And how exciting would it be if other people are invited to Jesus and worship him with us? Is is that the root of your worship of God, bringing to your king, whether it is your service in Sunday school and being a, a greeter and hearing the word and obeying the word, the songs that we sing, whatever it is, Is it, am I bringing this to my king, or is it, 
I have to sit in the right seat. They have to play the right songs. The decor has to be just right. The preaching has to be spot on. Or I'm going to say, well, that was garbage. That wasn't very good today. God's spirit didn't move. If you come here to evaluate worship, you are not worshiping. If you come here to say, I am bringing praise to my king, that is actual biblical worship. And we can sit down, like I said, across the table with open Bibles, and I guarantee you I'll win that argument a hundred times out of a hundred. That being said, why do I say all of this? Because my heartfelt desire is I want to bring the worship that my king wants First of all, because he's my king. But second of all, I know that when I'm obedient to his word and I worship him the way his word prescribes, I know I'll be blessed in that. But if I come to worship with a consumer mindset that I have to be fed and it has to be my way, then every once in a while you might get lucky. Your emotions might be pricked. Something might happen. And you can say, well, that was good. But by and large, you are approaching worship in a way that is contrary to God's word. And man, I don't want that for me. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for us. I don't want that for our church. But I believe, I believe, God's been speaking to me about this week, a large percentage of our churches today, that's what's happened. It's been a subtle shift. That's why a lot of the older congregation dressed up. You know, in America today, so many things, everything's gone so casual a lot of times we go more casual in the church as a way to bridge the younger generations. But why did the older generations dress up? They're bringing their best to their king. You know, and if your best is a pair of sweatpants and a shirt with a hole in it, that's fine. It's, not, it's never our place to judge another's worship. But it's a hard issue. And I, I, please think about this. When you gather together, are you bringing worship to your king? Or are you waiting to be impressed? What's really at the heart of it? What's really at the heart of it? If you're waiting to be impressed, you are looking to that worship service to be your Savior. To get you through the week. Where we have a Savior who is actually there 24-7. Jesus does not wait for Sunday morning to show up and show off. Jesus is at work every moment of every day. Amen? And so, therefore, we go to him every moment of every day. We encourage each other. We don't wait for Sunday morning to encourage each other. We go to each other during the week. We call each other. You are on my mind. I'm praying for you. We, we sing during the week. We praise God during the week. It's all week long, every day of every moment. And then Sunday morning, we just get to do it together. But it's all about bringing it to the king. That's what it's all about. Amen? Well, think on that this week. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> there is but one Savior, and He saves by sacrifice. Got more on that, but we'll move on. Christ, that's the second word. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Now, the word Christ is sometimes translated Christos, is sometimes translated as Savior. It is a different concept, though. Christ is more often, it can be translated as Messiah, because really what it has within it is a connotation of one who, okay, if Savior saves you, 
the, the Christ or the Messiah is one who defeats your enemies. So you are saved, Savior, by your Christ, your Messiah, who defeats your enemies. Do you understand how those concepts go together? And so he says there, the angel of the Lord says to the shepherds, there is one who is born to you who is a Savior. He's a, he saves you, and he's born to you, and he's yours. But he's also your Christ. He defeats your enemies. He's your deliverer. That brings us to our second point. There is but one deliverer, and he's jealous for you. And this is where I think we miss out on the power of Jesus being our deliverer each day. It's much like with the Savior. We, we have far too many plan Bs. We say, well, I trust Jesus, but if he doesn't work out, I also have this. We have far too many plan Bs. No, I'm going to trust Jesus. Stop talking. God, I'm going to wait on God to move. Stop. Period. God's going to do it or it's not going to work. Enough. You see, if we really box ourselves into where God has to show up or we will fail, that's actually showing that we believe he's our deliverer. But I think far too often we put plan B's in place. And I'm not saying to be dumb about your life. But if I want to know God delivering me, I better let go of the other things I'm trusting in. I need to put myself in a position where it's only he that will deliver me. And that's the thing is that God, he wants to be your deliverer. And that's our joy. I mean, that, isn't it amazing how encouraging is it to know that the God of the universe wants to be your deliverer? Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome to know that the God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence says, I want you to know me intimately as the one who not only saves you, but delivers you. He wants to be that. He is jealous to be that in your life. And he will actually allow you to fail until you quit trusting in the other deliverers so he can take his rightful place in your life. And that's what he did with Israel as he delivered them from Egypt. The ten plagues. If you study the ten plagues where God brought these plagues on the Egyptians, each of the plagues were against one of the gods of Egypt. And what God was doing over and over again is he was showing his authority and his power over these false gods that Israel would know that there is one God and there is none but him. He wanted them to know him. He wanted Israel to know him as their deliverer and to make no mistakes about it. And you know what? That's great news. To know that my God not only loves me and saves me, but man, he doesn't, he's not going to compete. He's going to say, I am your deliverer, and I alone am your deliverer. And I get to trust in him to do just that. That's actually great news. But the third title, and the final one this morning, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, and then what? The Lord. The Lordship of Christ is central to my very being. So you hear me preach on it all the time. So I'm not going to belabor this point, but kurios, the Lord, the primary meaning relates to possession of power, authority, strong, ruling. And our third point, final point today is this. There is but one Lord, and you were made for his rule. 
and I've talked to you about this before, but it's good to be reminded even daily that the way God designed you to really live in the abundant life is in submission to the king. That's how you're made. That's how we're made. We are made to surrender to the lordship of Jesus. So when I am not surrendered to the king, I'm actually living against the grain of how I, would, of how I was made, and I'm actually creating my own problems. But when I surrender to the king, even, even when it hurts my pride, even when, it, even when it is a big act of faith, oh, even when it stretches me, if I'm surrendering to the king, I'm making the right choice. Because I was made for his rule. I was made for it. I was reading a news article this week uh, by a guy uh, it was a story about a country singer, Brett Kissel. I have no idea who Brett Kissel is. I'm not in, endorsing Brett Kissel's music. I don't. If I listen to country, it's it's the Outlaws or Willie Whalen and the Boys and Johnny Cash gospel collection. Okay, that's country music to me. I don't know what all the new stuff is. So this Brett Kissel guy, he he's talking about in this article about how when he was a child, he really looked up to Johnny Cash. He wanted to be like Johnny Cash. And, and when June died, he wrote a letter to Johnny Cash, and I'm so sorry for your loss. And he didn't ever expect to hear back from Johnny Cash. And it was around this time he had his first show that as a young man had sold out. The venue held, uh, had 600 seats, and all 600 seats had sold out. And his mom wakes him up and says, Brett, I've got some great news for you. Your show is sold out. It was his first show to sell out. But she said, I've also got something difficult to tell you. Johnny Cash died today. So he wakes up and goes, oh, he was crushed because he just looked up to Johnny Cash. He wanted his life, his music to be like Johnny Cash. So this guy that he's looking up to has passed away on the same day that he has his first sold-out show. And then a couple hours went by and the mail came. And he opens the mail and there was a re reply from Johnny Cash to his letter. And the way that it was dated, Johnny Cash had written this reply and mailed it five days before he died. And so Brett got this letter from Cash on the day Cash died. And, and Johnny Cash, I know his life was a roller coaster, right? But there is something about when people are about to die, there is something about listening to what they say. They have a perspective. It's worth listening to. And this is the one reply. It was a very short reply. I wrote this down. This is what Johnny Cash told Brett Kessel. This is it. Just very short. To Brett, Jesus first, Johnny Cash. That was his reply. I thought, man, that, you can't really do it much better than that. That here you are, the life that Cash lived. Here's this young man looking up to him. And the message that Cash wanted to communicate five days before he died, was young man, Jesus first. That's the lordship of Christ, right? That sums it up. Jesus first. So let me ask it to you this way. This is what I've been pondering in my own life. If there was an objective outside party that, that watched my life, that saw how I spent my time, the way I talked, the way I treated people, the way I spent my money, basically what I did just 
just somebody to just watch my life. If they watch me for a week, for two, for a month, for a year, would their evaluation be Jesus first in that life? Would their evaluation be Jesus is that man's Lord? You know, there's really no reason why it shouldn't. Think about our lives. We have a God who years ago, there was a day, there was a day when he stepped out of heaven and he came to time. Jesus did not come to this earth to help you be a little bit better you. He came to die for your sins that you could be freed from your sin, the bondage of sin. He defeated death, hell, on the grave. He delivered you from Satan's dominion. He transferred you. As you believe in him by faith, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's own son. You are forgiven. You are filled with God's spirit. You are the object of God's love and his affection. You are a child he delights in. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Heaven is now your home. You have a promise from your Father. You have a God who will not fail you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is yours. And that is not for you just to be a little bit better. That is for you to surrender to King Jesus and for the King of the universe to now live his life through you. And that is possible because that day. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Would you please stand with me as we bring our service to a close this morning? I just invite you to come to Jesus. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, He's yours if you by faith will receive Him. He's been born to you. He's for you. Don't you dare go, well, I need to get cleaned up before I come to them. You can't do it. That's a failed premise. But you can come to him with your mess, and he'll take care of it. There is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Maybe as I've been preaching, you've realized some things as I have, that we've been trusting in some other things. It's subtle, but I've been trusting in some other things to be my Savior, to be my Christ, to be my Lord. Maybe this Christmas season, it's just a time to come back and say, there is but one. There is but one Savior. There is but one Christ. There is but one Lord. I'm going to pray. One of my elders will be down front. We're simply here for you to encourage you, to pray with you, to meet you as God leads you. I'm going to pray, and as we sing, you come. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. You are our Savior, our Christ, and our Lord. There is no other. And may you receive glory. May you receive glory from what we bring to you this day. It's in Jesus' name I pray.